that's when evangelicalism becomes more of a political marker. Mm. And the people who had been associated with Billy Graham and those earlier institutions followed right into that and, and became Republican mostly. Mm. So there is a transition, but what happened in the 1940s around the institutions or around the people who supported Billy Graham, that wasn't nearly as political as it, as evangelicalism mm. became in the Reagan era and beyond. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hey y'all, this is Peter Bell, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. We started a Bible study in Santa Ana under the oversight of Oceanside United Reformed Church. We've got a growing group of people from a wide variety of backgrounds with the hope and prayer that we will plant a church in Santa Ana this summer. If you're looking for a church that preaches the gospel every week and has close-knit fellowship, contact us at Reformed at gmail.com or find a link in our show notes to be added to our list. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Guilt, Grace, Gratitude, featuring Nick Fulweiler and Peter Bell. It's another fresh day of grace and mercy here. And we're doing, like I've said before, we're doing something a little different in season two. We're interviewing top theologians and pastors on topics they have extensive research and knowledge on the, inside the Reformed Christian Church. And this week, we have a special guest I'll let Peter go ahead and introduce. Yeah, we have Dr. or Daryl D.G. Hart. He's the Distinguished Associate Professor of History at Hillsdale College. He's taught at a couple seminaries, my seminary a little while ago. Uh, he's got a couple books on evangelicalism, which is what we're going to talk to him about, and how it differs from the Reformed faith and, and kind of how we can see the history of it into what it's become today and, and how we can see it as Christians. So thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Hart. Great to be with you. Yeah, Thanks thank for you having that. me. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, we're, we're super excited. So I'm just gonna throw out a handful of questions to you. Go ahead and uh, knock them out of the park as you will. Um, go ahead and elaborate as much as you want. This is, this is your, you're the meat and potatoes of this, of this show and we're just kind of here to listen and ask questions yeah we're the thanksgiving sides that people are like ah, i guess we'll eat it well i, I have to something. i I'm have stuffing. to say probably this is going to go out by audio and not have the video uh part of it but it's nice to see faces because yeah sometimes when i do interviews on the phone and i have no idea what the people on the other end of the phone are what their faces look like and i may be boring them to death so anyway <laughs> uh, we, we've all got I'll faces for radio that's all right <laughs> I'll try not to drone on, but go ahead. <laughs> Perfect. So the first question is, is there an agreed, is there an agreed upon definition of evangelicalism? Has it changed over the past 100 years? 100 plus. Um, I, I would have, prior to the election of Donald Trump, I would have said there was an agreed upon definition of evangelicalism. Um, and it was pretty minor, meager definition having to do with, especially the conversion experience, which goes back 
to in some ways the origins of the evangelical tradition with uh, the first great awakening. I prefer to use uh, a deceased friend, really good friend, who's now deceased though. He called it the pretty, the pretty good awakening, the first pretty good awakening. And so, uh, but anyway, George Whitfield, little joke there maybe, but I, I think it's a useful distinction. Uh, George Whitfield, the evangelist, Anglican priest, who was a rock star. He was just a, a big household name on both sides of the Atlantic. He basically said that uh, the conversion experience was the defining element of what it meant to be a genuine Christian. And that's, Puritans may have been moving in that direction beforehand, but with the 18th century awakening, that's when the born again experience became very prominent. But because Whitfield was picking up on the Puritan tradition, there was a high regard for scripture, also very much uh, an emphasis on the, the atonement, the vicarious atonement of Christ, and then a commitment to living a holy life. Some have called that the four marks of being evangelical. Since, um, and that's gone through different phases, it's been very much non-denominational, parachurch driven oftentimes. Um, so it's hard to associate evangelicalism with any particular uh, denomination or church. There are institutions, but still it, it can, it, it's very much exists apart from institutions. Um, but since the election of Donald Trump, uh, a number of historians have begun to emphasize the um, darker side of them. And we don't need to get into this, but just to make your listeners aware that there are historians now who, who themselves uh, identify as evangelical, who would now ca characterize it as misogynist, racist, yada, 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 because 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in, in 2016. Mm. I think that's really bad scholarship, actually. Uh, it's it's written too much in the moment of um, the hysteria surrounding the current president, of whom I'm not a fan, but also I'm not shocked by him either. But so within the last several years, there's been a an attempt to reset what evangelicalism is. But prior to that, the, what I just mentioned um, was a generally agreed upon understanding of evangelical. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting too. With yeah, with Whitfield and then with Trump, because I've I've heard that same statistic over the last maybe month or so, and then especially with 2016. Um, do you think there's been any change with 2020 too, with some of the the new statistics coming out, or is that it's just too early to tell? Um. Well, I think still think what I've seen it's maybe a, a slight drop off, maybe down to 76. 75% from exit polling. Um, and and st still there is this kind of indignation among some kind of evangelicals that the majority of evangelicals would vote for this man as, as immoral and indecent as he is. And again, I don't necessarily think that he's uh, a virtuous fellow, um, but it's just, when do we evaluate people quite so openly and uh, relentlessly this way? So, hmm. And I, I know you've written a little bit on this too, 
Um, would this have anything to do with kind of like the 70s moral majority movement with evangelicals kind of co-opting that and, and making that part of the church movement and, and that bringing it into republicanism and then right. like blending those two things together? Right. Well, that's a, so that's a good question. And it, and it would, in my understanding of evangelicalism, um, the, so you had a kind of evangelical tradition that went from the 18th into the 19th century and it was pretty much sort of assumed if you were a Protestant in America, you were evangelical. What they meant by that could have been a number of different things. And even in the 1920s, during the fun fundamentalist modernist controversy, you had modernists or liberals who really didn't believe in the deity of Christ or the vicarious atonement or the virgin birth, who would have called themselves evangelical. So it became a, a nebulous term that was generically used to identify just Protestant. You're not Catholic, you're not Unitarian, you're not Mormon, you're evangelical because you're Protestant. Um, but in the 1940s, a, um, a number of former fundamentalists began to create institutions that went by the name evangelical. Um, the biggest person in that group of people was Billy Graham, who in some ways became the poster boy for evangelicalism. And so between 1940 and say 1980, you had an evangelical movement that was largely driven by religious convictions. There was some notion of influencing the culture, but it wasn't overtly political. It wasn't geared up to organize itself politically or for electoral politics. Hmm. Then in 1979, with, with the foundation of the Moral Majority, um, with Jerry Falwell as the president, even though he wasn't necessarily the driving force, there were members of the Republican Party who were behind that. That's when evangelicalism becomes more of a political marker. Mm. And the people who had been associated with Billy Graham and those earlier institutions followed right into that. And, and became Republican, mostly. Hmm. So there is a transition, but what happened in the 1940s around the institutions or around the people who supported Billy Graham, that wasn't nearly as political as, it, as evangelicalism hmm. became in the Reagan era and beyond. How and why did the, did the modern non-denominational movement begin? <clears throat> Well, part of it is the nature of American, American society. When you have um, freedom of religion, when you have separation of church and state, when you have no established church, when the government is basically going to be neutral about uh, churches, it's fairly easy for anyone to found a church or to found a religious organization. Um, even before America started, there were English Protestants who came to America, such as the pilgrims, or, and were coming up to Thanksgiving season. These people were trying to exist outside the Church of England. They left for the Netherlands. They eventually came to, to North America. They, they met in their homes for church life. They, they formed conventicles. And people who were meeting outside the established churches, Protestants were doing this before the United States, but oftentimes you could get yourself in trouble. It was almost like meeting 
with more than 25 during COVID or something. Um, <laughs> but when America starts with the Constitution, First Amendment, 1789, it's pretty, it's pretty much possible for anybody to throw up a, sh a sign and say, we're a church, now come on. Hmm. So that, that part of it is, is always there. And then you have Baptists or independent churches. Baptists are really independent churches. I mean, they, they form themselves in conventions to try to work together on something in common like missions or some kinds of publications, but they really do resist the label of um, denomination because <clears throat> Baptists, Baptists locate the authority of the church within the congregation, the members of a particular congregation. Um, so it, I, it's partly the nature of evangelicalism. You can have an, an evangelist or a revivalist who becomes quite successful and begins to inspire people to 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 build little communities of believers and have them become churches, but you also have an environment like the United States where it's possible to do that. So it's a little bit of both the nature of evangelicalism, which is generally anti-institutional um, or parachurch driven, but the United States also allows that to happen. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah that <clears throat> That got me going, like thinking of a question too, because I hadn't thought about the the English church and the state church and then America specifically not having a state church and that leading towards a more open concept. And I, I was also thinking what you were saying at the end with, and this is something I, I went through being part of a non-denominational church for a little bit, that there is not an anti-denominational, um, but a little bit of like, oh no, we don't want to be part of a, like this box, we are an open church that that has availability for whatever we want to do and we're not defined by like a specific set of rules or a specific way of doing church that's at least that was that was my kind of upbringing right. and I, I don't yeah. know if other people kind of have that same upbringing yeah. too i agree it's kind of like um i think that the strength of america is the you know freedom of religion and that kind of thing uh but also, because of that, we could get, like you said, anybody could just put up a sign and say, we're a church. And that's kind of like, they're right, obviously. Um, but like what you're saying is like with non-denominational, um, it kind of, it makes sense why they maybe were inspired to start doing things the way they did. But I could see how you're, there's no checks. It seems like there's less checks and balances for tradition on, on, on staying um, consistent on a message. So right. you might be really at the mercy of just going to a church that happens to have like a, you're lucky to get a really good pastor that just knows the Bible well. And then you could go across the street to another non-denominational. You have, it can be on a completely different page. Right. Something. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, um, with uh, fast food restaurants and you, you expect uniformity of product um, and denominations can try to do that. I mean, it doesn't work because there's so many other aspects of Christian ministry, just the nature of the pastor himself. Pastors have different personalities. And so you will relate to that person a certain way, but still, if you have, in, as you do in Reformed churches, 
a set of beliefs that people need to affirm, the officers need to affirm. If you have a church government structure that everybody needs to work within, um, and maybe a shared understanding of what worship should be like, um, you, that, that covers some of the bases. But even as much as non-denominational uh, may characterize American Protestantism, um, it's probably your experience like mine as a kid. I mean, we, I was in an independent, fundamentalist, dispensational church, but we were, we sort of had, we knew where to look for pastors. It was either Dallas Seminary or Philadelphia College of Bible. So there are still institutions that form a kind of a way to network so that you, you know, there's some kind of vetting of, oh, okay, no, I know this guy, or I know those people, they speak highly of this guy. So, um, and that does informally what denominations do. Um, yeah. And that there's the other, the other side, I think, of non-denominational is the phenomenon of celebrity pastors. And, um, and then you have a group of churches that maybe grow up around a certain pastor and the way he does things and people want to be like that. And that's another way of trying to give some kind of coherence or brand to a set of churches. But hmm. do you know if this is a, this may be too, I don't know, focus of a question or maybe outside of your scholarship, but is this a specifically American, not problem, but American thing of having kind of a freer spirit within the churches and, and less kind of denominational control or more like I mean, difference between messages and, and less authoritarian control over top of it. Is right. it, is that like a specifically American thing or is it, is it, do you know if it's broader than America, kind of the history that led into this is no Whitfield right. specifically ministered in America for this specific purpose. Right. I would say, um, America did it first and the most, and it has now, it has gone around the world so that, oh, parts of South America, parts of Africa, Australia, they, they, you might see versions of what happens in America happening there, but oftentimes, especially in the 20th century when you have, um, mass media and mass communications, electronic forms of mass communication, like radio, television, now the internet, it's possible for people in remote parts of the world to see what's happening in the United States and think, yeah, that's a really good way to do it. And it's partly also because of the, 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 the stature the United States has in world affairs. What, for good or ill, I, I tend to be fairly skeptical about that. I wish we weren't as prominent as we are, even though I think we have responsibilities to in that prominence. And I don't think we should walk back from those, but still because of the United States emerged as this world power after world war two, it's in some ways conceivable for me to think that people in, in um, developing parts of the world might look to the United States, not only as a beacon of freedom, but as a beacon of, of the gospel and therefore emulate what might be going on here without necessarily looking at the particulars of what the government is doing to regulate religion in those countries. Um, and, mm -hmm. and some of that would depend on whether it's a 
former colony and you know what how the the nation emerged out of that colony for instance like just thinking of brazil which i've been to a few times and keep tabs on a little bit with the presbyterian churches there Mm -hmm. um i mean i i I think they don't have an established church Hmm. although i think roman catholicism was a near kind of establishment for a while but i think they also had to work out a a relationship and freedom for protestants um sometime at least in the 20th century and so i think there's a a kind of freedom for religion in brazil which makes it possible for brazilians Hmm. to emulate what might happen in the united states interesting yeah that's again not necessarily in a good way but i i i really don't think i'm uncomfortable with the united states being responsible at least myself being an american the united states being responsible for white what may be happening elsewhere in the world because i think mm. it's hard enough being responsible for, for what happens here but mm. um anyway yeah. yeah i agree with that um it kind of reminds me of that documentary american gospel yeah if you you're familiar with that or watch that? i am i haven't i didn't see it i saw the previews that i want to see it but oh yeah you gotta watch it yeah. yeah it talks a lot about this stuff how we've kind of one of our main exports out of the country has been the prosperity gospel to other countries yeah. and broad evangelicalism so it's yeah it talks a lot about this stuff yeah so that's kind of one of the things that we try to do on this podcast is a um way of apologetics not saying we're sorry <laughs> <laughs> that happened or sorry christian it's more defending the true bible and being like hey you know you know listen to this show we can maybe answer some deep questions about the bible that um, unfortunately a lot of churches in america have not been doing and even worse spreading either a lack of gospel or a false gospel to the world and so that's not good right right <clears throat> um so on the flip end, how is this all different than the Reformed Church, the Reformed Christian Church? Um, and maybe if you want to like have this more focused towards OPC and Machen, because I know that's a lot of your your right. um, scholarship well, too. It, it doesn't have to be. I mean, I think the way Presbyterianism came to the United States and the way um, the Dutch Reformed Churches came to the United States are somewhat different stories. Hmm. Um, but in, in, in many respects, they're trying to do something similar, which is to emulate what happened in the 16th and 17th centuries and trying to reproduce that in the United States. Hmm. What makes it difficult is that in Scotland or the Netherlands, the Presbyterianism or Reformed churches were the established churches. Here they are not. So it means here that Presbyterians and Reformed have to compete with everybody on a, on a level playing field, as it were. But Reformed churches generally have a, have a set of creeds or doctrines. They have a set of church polities. They have some uh, understanding of what worship should be. And so there are guardrails for those churches and how they conduct themselves that generally speaking, non-denominational churches or evangelicals don't have. Um, 
And that means that evangelicals can actually produce something good. They can also produce something bad. Doesn't mean there aren't bad Reformed churches or bad Presbyterian churches, but there are more mechanisms in place to try to make those churches better or good because of the shared structure of participating in a presbytery or a classes or a synod or something that there's an accountability structure in the reformed churches that generally speaking evangelical or non-denominational churches don't have mm -hmm. but again it doesn't mean that we don't have problems in the reformed churches mm -hmm. and i i want to be careful about being yeah. triumphalist about about that would you would you say within the kind of the broad evangelical tradition, you talked a little bit about the moral majority and, and how they joined forces in the 40s with Billy Graham and up until the 60s, would there have been a kind of a different identity within kind of the evangelical church pre-1940 than what we see now? Yes, I think so. Um, like how would they have viewed themselves and their message and would have seemed, because what I see now in the church, and I'm sure a lot of those who listen to this would see potentially a big difference between a church without denominational control versus going to the Reformed Presbyterian or Reformed kind of ish church. They would see probably, I think, a big difference in the way the church is done, the historical understanding of the church and where they come from. Would that be the same case 100 years ago or would that be different? Well, I was thinking more of... Um say 70 to 80 years ago anyway okay when evangelicalism started the the modern version of evangelicalism the one that we associate with billy graham say um i think prior to the moral majority prior to when evangelicals became identifiable political actors a a block of voters as it were um it, it's again it's not as if there weren't concerns about politics but i think in the 40s 50s 60s early 70s evangelicals would have been more religious than political um and what also was true is that they would have worried about the mainline churches and the liberal churches um because the mainline churches there the historic Protestant churches, generally of British descent, Presbyterians, Methodists, Episcopalians, Congregationalists, Baptists of some stripes, they, um, they would have been liberal churches that evangelicals said, we don't want to be liberal like they are. They wouldn't have been as, as say, angry about it as fundamentalists supposedly were, but still they would have been on the lookout for liberalism or modernism, as they called it. Um, Carl Henry, I just read a, reviewed a, a collection of his essays. He was an editor, the original editor of Christianity Today magazine. He taught at Fuller Seminary for a while. He was a prominent uh, intellectual within evangelical circles, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and this it was just amazing to me, reading, rereading some of these essays, that he was always worried about modernism and always worried about the mainline. Evangelicals were up against something. They were trying to change America, 
but they also had to be worried about fighting liberalism in some way, maybe just, you know, sparring, not fighting. And I think that that understanding of a, of a liberal Christianity has largely been lost uh, since 1980, if not even before that. Um, even in conservative Presbyterian circles that I'm most familiar with, I, it's really hard to convince younger pastors, younger church members and officers that liberalism is a problem hmm. or that it could have actually happen to us again. Interesting. Um, and I think, for instance, right now with um, some of the efforts to um, link the church to various social reform movements that have been going on in the last four years, especially the last year, and it's sometimes called woke Christianity. I think that gets a little cliched. I really think that's, think that's a version of the social gospel, hmm. which was a, a wing of liberal Protestantism. And, but to try to tell some of these pastors, you're doing what liberal Protestants were doing back at the beginning of the 20th century, they don't think, hmm. they don't really kind of know or they don't get that question. Hmm. So the um, battles have kind of changed. Yeah, although I don't think they have. If you read Machen, I mean, I am a Machen guy. Oh, yeah. His if you read Christianity and liberalism, yep. I mean, I think those issues are still, they're ever present in mm. the church. They've just switched, not necessarily changed. Right. I mean, the, maybe some different ways of expressing. Yeah. Right, right. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, <clears throat> I mean, in recent times, too, there's we've talked about this in season one, you know, some direct line biblical issues where we feel like, you know, based on the two kingdoms, we're not, we're part of, you know, we're living in this world, but we're, our hope is in the, the, the heavenly kingdom. Right. Right. And there's still some things biblically. Um, we go to the voter box knowing that we're going to, draw a hard line in the sand for you know their direct line biblical issues and then there's other ones that are more you know you can maybe have an open discussion or debate with a fellow believer about and you could vote either way on you know so um but yeah things things definitely have gotten more blended and heated uh between you know um politics in religion for right. sure right yeah um yeah, adding adding to that too, um, with all this blending, and you were talking about kind of the the woke Christianity, which I've I've heard too. Um, I mean, maybe this is too broad of a question. Do you know where that comes from? Like where where this movement kind of started, and and how it has kind of affected the church today? The most recent one, or the older roots? The, of the most like the ones that people are thinking of. So maybe the the social justice movement and the social gospel movement now right. that people know of right now. My sense is that um, 2014, the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, that really catalyzed a number of evangelical and Presbyterian reform pastors that moved those issues way up front. And it only, it only gained more momentum after the George Floyd um, death in uh, – this past May. Um, and I, I there's, I mean, I, to be indignant about 
police brutality, although I don't think that's what happened in Ferguson because of what the federal officials and the inv investigation it all revealed, but to be indignant about the death of George Floyd is just, of course, I mean, that there's no, no way you can defend that in any way, but you can still defend police. You can still defend structures of, of law enforcement and, and the like. You don't have to somehow say, we're going to defund police, which maybe didn't really mean all that or something. Um, and to go all the way to the direction of America is just littered with racism everywhere um, and all sorts of white supremacy, it's oppression, the list can go on. Um, it, it seems like people saw movements going in that direction in part because of police brutality, in part because of incipient racism that still exists. Then you have the Trump factor. And I think a lot of Christians, pastors especially, wanted to show that they were concerned about that and wanted to somehow speak to that moment, um, which is, again, understandable. But if, if you don't have a biblical um, point to make in that, if that you're called to, to speak the word of God. And if the Bible doesn't address, yes, the Bible addresses injustice in a certain way, but Old Testament addressing injustice is very different from the New Testament living with injustice. And I don't see that equation or that <clears throat> differentiation made oftentimes. People want to be prophetic, mm. but we're not living in Old Testament Israel. Mm. We're living in something much more like the Roman Empire, where Paul and Peter are both telling us, honor the emperor. Mm. Oh, by the way, the emperor's coming to kill you, but honor mm. the emperor. Uh, that I, I don't know how you... I don't know, see them being prophetic. Hmm. Yeah, that's um, a huge point. Kind of closing this out, what would you say to kind of bring it all together? Um, whether, whether you're- <laughs> No pressure, a, no pressure. Yeah, yeah. On a very, <laughs> yeah. on a very broad spectrum evangelical, uh, for whatever that means, like, I know some people like me, even up to very recently, and to be honest, even kind of now is like, Reformed, evangelical, Christian, they all seem to kind of definitely overlap. I mean, Christians, right. definitely the umbrella. Um, no matter what, whether you call yourself evangelical or a different denomination than the Reformed Church, how, what can we all agree on that would unify us? Well, I mean, I, I think what, what we agree upon as Protestants. I've done a lot of work lately on Roman Catholics, and I have great respect for Roman Catholics. I have at the college where I teach in Hillsdale, there's a, a very lively Roman Catholic community, both in the um, professors and in the student body. And I get really frustrated when I see Protestants convert to Rome here. So it's not that my appreciation runs in that direction. That I say, oh, great, you became Roman Catholic. I don't think that's a good thing. Because um, I think, for instance, there's idolatry in the Church of Rome, and I don't think Christians should be um, sinning like that against the Second Commandment, for instance. But, um, but so what does unite Protestants in some way, aside from not having a pope, is that we believe in the Bible. And if you can find a minister 
who preaches the word faithfully and really attends to the word, whether he is in a, a Baptist church, Presbyterian church, a Nazarene church, an Acts 29 congregation, that's, that's a blessing because the word of God has the word of life. And um, I wish more evangelicals were as committed to that as I think the Reformed churches are, at least on paper. But still, that is a great legacy of the Protestant Reformation, uh, sola scriptura. And, um, and, and the way we find out about Jesus um, is in the pages of Scripture. Hmm. It, there's just no other way to find him. I mean, God can speak to you directly. And I guess if you're some kind of charismatic or Pentecostal Christian, you may think that. But I read the gospel narratives of Jesus, and I'm overwhelmed with that. And especially if you look at those gospel narratives within, from the perspective of the history of Old Testament Israel and see how Israel failed and how Jesus fulfilled all the, all the demands of the law. Um, it's, it's an amazing story, and it's an amazing thing that Jesus did, obviously. And where do you find that story? You find it in the Bible. I've become more of a Bible thumper than I ever was. <laughs> and um, so I think that's something that we could try to find unity around as mm. Protestants. And there are a lot of Catholics also who, who believe the Bible. I'm not trying to exclude them from that, but then they have bishops to worry about, Pope to worry about, all, all sorts of other things. So, hmm. Yeah, and that was, I like this too. It's, it helps us kind of see where the church is at now how it's gotten to where it's at and what we can unify around versus yeah. seeing those distinctions. But it's also helpful. I mean, it's helpful knowing the history, knowing where we come from and where we're going. Right. Yes, for sure. Sweet. Thank you very much. Thank you Darryl, for coming on the podcast. I've, I've heard Good you to on meet you guys. Good yeah, to talk to you. Presby cast before. And I wanted to get you on and talk to you and, yeah, I hope this is a, a good podcast for those who are listening and learn a little bit about our history. Well, great to be with you. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. Hey, guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world and how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all at once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are, are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. Yeah. And you guys can find that link on 
Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes, and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.